Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, David Breer. Say hi, David. Hello. Uh, (laughs) You get a sound effect this week. (laughs) And we have our favourite reporter from Business Insider, Sarah Kachansky. Sarah, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Although I don't have a sound effect. I want Uh, one of those next time. Yeah, favouritism. David's cheating again. Uh, Quick announcement before we start. Fintech Insider News, a platform for fintech news, trends and stories from the industry is now live. So that's fintechinsidernews.com. And if you've used Reddit, if you've used Hacker News, this is a place where you send us your stories, you discuss them and you upvote what we should be talking about every week so head over to fintechinsidernews.com sign up become a contributor discuss or just upvote the stories you want to hear on next week's show disclaimer it's still in beta it's not looking perfect yet so bear that in mind as you browse and let us know your thoughts on how we can improve Uh, but now we've got to get on with the news Okay, first story up, David. Uh, This is directly on Revolut's website. Revolut have announced a crowdfunding campaign. What's the story here? Yeah, crowdfunding has well and truly sort of got to be the uh, hot new way of proving whether people give a damn about your product, I guess, right? You know, we've seen quite a few of these come through, probably most notably the the sort of Monzo one recently where they they totally sort of smashed it when it came to um, the amount of uh, money that they were being provisioned for only a, a million pounds that they actually wanted. But I guess Revolut have kind of gone one step further on this one and actually a pretty impressive sort of website for this as well. You can literally live see the amount of money that's kind of ranking up. So they were looking for 4 million in their crowdfunding thing. They're now up to 12.4 with 16 hours to go, which is insane. So they raised 12.4 million when they were looking to raise 4 million and they still have 16 hours to go on this. So, you know, the idea of being sort of massively oversubscribed for services is uh, quite an impressive thing. So this is 28 and a half thousand people who have pre-registered their interest to actually invest in this which again for for somebody like Revolut is just amazing. I think there's something really interesting here about customers as advocates and customers as investors uh, the older listeners will remember the Big Bang and uh, when you know, kind of the 80s and we had the kind of the listed- literal Big Bang. Yeah. <laughs> <I> know, <laughs> the really old listeners. Dinosaurs were like what's that in the sky? The Big Bang in the city when uh, a whole bunch of things happened and then under Thatcher there was the privatization of a lot of uh, companies uh, when when many of us were still quite, quite young. Uh, but basically, you know, the likes of British Telecom and British Gas were taken out of public hands and into being share issues. And there were a lot of TV adverts about becoming shareholders in these sorts of things. This is kind of that, but for the modern generation. This is like, how do companies turn their customers back into advocates and give them a feel as if they own part of that company and become shareholding in it? It's great marketing, but it's also a new way of raising capital. Uh, what, do, what do you think about this one, Sarah? Well, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think that it's a a brilliant idea because obviously if you've got money in something you want it to work the way to make it work in this case is to use it and tell your friends and family to use it I think that the premise is, is you know is relatively simple um, you know, the, the big success stories, as you said, people like Monzo. I mean, you know, I know I'm not friends with anybody who doesn't have a Monzo card at this point because because of the yeah, deliberately. Did you ostracize them? I, I, I have a you purge every HSBC now card. I just don't want to be your friend. Right? No, that's it. Off the table. I'm intrigued to know who's doing it for the returns and who's doing it because it's cool. Like there's a genuine kind of thing here because I 
can't see anybody seriously doing this for returns. I can't see anybody thinking they're going to make them millions. millions, not nothing. But that's pledged. Now, you've got to remember that Monzo, et cetera, et cetera, had, um, and uh, who the other guys was, who had very, very similar amounts pledged. And then when it came to opening up the floodgates, they got less than a quarter of the amount. So it's very easy to say, I'll give you 100 quid when it's oversubscribed. But these crowdfunding rounds, and I don't know how they're doing it, I guess I'm guessing Cedars. So I don't know if they have a prospectus or not. And they haven't got a prospectus. They can't raise more than five point something million anyway. So it doesn't really matter that they've got 12 million pledged because it's people going, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then when somebody comes to it and is like, give me your money, they're like, actually, no, change my mind. So I would, I would really like to see how much they actually raise when they, they get to it. And also, I would really like to actually know people's motivations for investing here, it's like the, the fin- consumers. Sorry. It's the kind of the fintech version of the nightclub with the long line outside it. It's like, look how many people couldn't invest in us. Look, at, everybody wants to pe- invest in us. It's a little bit show-offy. It's great from a marketing standpoint. Yeah. Well, de- uh, definitely from Revolut's perspective, this is like a, a sign of 28,465 people believing that we're a good thing to invest in. Is it, Yet- though? Is it? Or is it? You know, I've got this great idea, David, down the pub. I'm investing in these guys. Shiny new card. Look how cool it is. It's a fintech. Yeah, okay. You know, my I've got nothing else to invest in right now that's giving me great returns. Let's do that. Let's not even talk about ICOs yet. Yeah, but, it, it's, <laughs> maybe, it's maybe symptomatic of where the general investment market is uh, and savings market is uh, in most developed economies. What, what do we think Revolut are going to be doing with this money? Would be the, with the next one to a certain degree, because obviously there's quite a big push from their perspective into business, yeah. which, you know, makes total sense in terms of all of the functionality that those guys have got. Uh, you know, what do we, why are, why are they doing this raise? What are they going to be spending the four million on? They have moved very hard and fast with product launches, and I wouldn't be surprised if they just actually need a bit of capital in the bank right now to keep things rolling over yeah maybe? they, they want to be a bank they're a multi-currency account if you're a small business and you want to move money around the world they want to be everything to you there's probably a lot of product development that they've got to fund so that you can't hurt to have a few more million in the bank they took a bridging loan as well didn't they between their two most recent capital uh, raises so they are obviously running through money my, my colleague oscar would be able to give you the numbers i can't but they're running through money very very quickly it's not necessarily a bad thing but I suspect maybe that's the main motivation for them at this stage. High burn rate, hopefully high growth. Uh, but i got to move us on. Uh, there's a story here in Finextra saying that the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, has deemed DAO tokens and ICOs as securities. So that's a whole lot of jargon. But basically, uh, this, this internet funny money that creates new internet funny shares um, has been deemed by a US regulator to be a type of share that they would regulate. Uh, which, Sometimes. Which, some, some of the times, yes. That's a really good point. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's nothing to do with them. Yeah. But the, for the ones where it does, there's a thing called the Howie test. Um, the Howie test being... Uh, is this something that's going to increase in value? Can I reasonably expect that somebody's building a service, I hold a share in that, and it's going to you know, increase and I'm going to get a return from it uh, versus to- uh, app tokens and protocol tokens in which I'm buying the ability to access a product, which are the two slightly different types of uh, tokens that are out there. What's really interesting here is there's been two main reactions to this. The primary reaction from people has been that, uh, okay, so the regulator has come into this blockchain token space and they've put the hammer down and it means that nobody's going to innovate in the US because the SEC is a really angry and mean, nasty regulator, run away, run for the hills. And then there's a, there's a second wave that says, this is actually quite um, fleet-footed, light, uh, lightweight from the SEC. They could have done a lot more, especially given that the Dow famously lost 60 million. There could have been people... Uh, 
uh, holed up in front of the FCC. There could have been people, there could have been a lot of pain and fallout coming from this sort of stuff. So William Moygar, who's um, on Blockchain Insider a couple of weeks ago, um, and uh, Jeff Harwin, who also spoke about this on, on Blockchain Insider, both sort of said this is very even-handed. So, um, And that's my own personal perspective. I don't know if, Sarah, you have any views. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some things to be unpicked here, really. I mean, I think that um, my personal opinion is that generally it's quite a good thing. I also, as far as I understand it, and as far as I've understood it for, you know, the six, eight months I've been covering ICOs, we understood that some of them were securities. We knew that. Like, it wasn't It wasn't kind of, you know, all su- the SEC suddenly said they are. No, they were we, Reg we D, Reg S certified as securities. Yeah, yeah. so that, that's kind of what my first question was like, huh? Okay. The second point I think here is what the SEC has done is actually just clarify. So they haven't gone after Dow. They've just said, we're not going to enforce anything. We're just, this is our standpoint. Here it is. In actually very plain English, if you read the, um, the release and the, you know, investor bulletin that goes alongside it. Um, but for me, the really interesting thing here as well is kind of the question, do you need new regulation for new ways of doing things? Or do you just need the old regulation to be slightly more open-minded? So for me, it depends on the business model and not the technology, but I think it definitely raises the question, like, if ICOs can be securities, and if some of those people who are issuing ICOs are happy for them to be securities, why shouldn't they be? Well, absolutely. And so when I talk to a number of regulators, they, they say exactly that. I mean, one of the reasons the FCA launched Project Innovate was there are a lot of things that don't fit neatly into existing regulation. So the goal of Project Innovate was to help you understand, A, where do you fit into regulation? Or B, if you don't, do they need to create something new? And if they do need to create something new, does that come from a voluntary code of practice? And, and does it eventually evolve into having its own regulatory framework if one is needed? And that they should avoid regulating if unless absolutely necessary? Necessary creating new regulation isn't in, in really in anyone's interest unless it's needed. Uh, so this one's an interesting one, but like I say, we did have our sister podcast, Blockchain Insider. Um, so bi.11fs.com, find out more. Uh, Jeff Harwin, who's former CFTC, gave us five, ten minutes on this subject, and, and you can download that right now after you've listened to this episode. So David, next story here is one from TechCrunch, where Google have launched their own AI studio to foster machine intelligence startups. They've they, they got like an incubator. Are they sticking them in soil? Like what's it's AI school? <laughs> yeah, plugging little sort of robots into things. It's uh, quite an interesting one. But this is literally like the movie robots here. Or <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like it. But it, it, this is almost an accelerator, as you sort of describe it. To be honest, with you. And, and sort of Google's continued, um, I guess, investment and uh, interest in the the AI space. So they're actually creating this studio program to, as they put it, feed hungry AI startups. Of the resources they need which is uh, kind of like one of those like i'm not sure if they're doing it purely for sort of altruistic you know reasons here it's like uh, tell me what you're doing and does this sound interesting and by the way we've got lots of money have you seen tensorflow we want it to be the platform for ai in the future um why don't you guys use tensorflow and leverage all of our network and all of the stuff we've already got and whilst you're doing it why don't you use a load of free google cloud services Mm -hmm. and by the way here's some money so we've got the option to acquire you in case you become a threat and all we think you're but this this model does make sense i mean if you're a startup and you're doing doing something in a niche area like maybe you're doing something in medicine or you're doing something in a specific sector and google happens to have some experience there and they happen to be able to give you some investment this could be really beneficial but there's definitely there's an obvious upside for google in this one. well they're they're not calling it necessarily an an accelerator there's this launch pad um sort of um, mechanic that they've they've got 
Um, but it's it's a pretty big deal. 40 countries, 10,000 startups, 2,000 mentors set up globally. So, you know, when they do this stuff, they kind of do it right. Well, it makes the fintech um, type of outreach that financial services have been doing in the last four or five years look kind of small child's play and, and sandboxy by by contrast this is definitely doing it properly and and i guess what they're doing here looks and sounds very differently to a lot of the reports you read about um ai deep learning in financial services which is usually just using analytics from 10 years ago in financial services this is the, the genuine cutting edge stuff and there's a, there's a lot to be learned here um what, what i like here is um there's a kind of a linked story from bbc news where um because uh, facebook announced their uh the q2 results uh they beat uh, the estimates the, uh, on earnings per share and revenue. The user growth is now uh, they're past 2 billion monthly active users. And, of course, Mark Zuckerberg says their, their future is AI. So another big tech uh, player is saying the future is AI. It's got to be the hottest thing ever. And, of course, Elon Musk then comes out and goes, no, 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 silly boy, you don't understand AI. Do you know what's going on with this one? Yeah, so off the back of, I guess, last week, we spoke a little bit about um, Elon Musk coming out and saying we need to be sort of careful don't sort of empower the robots too much because they might kill us and take take over everything and whatnot um so i I guess you know mark zuckerberg is coming along with a a different uh, approach to this saying you know we we um don't really have to worry about this sort of doomsday scenario being put forward by people like um elon musk and actually you know that it's just generally unhelpful to the whole sort of dialogue when it comes to uh, AI. The bit I really love about this is that given all of that sort of to and fro that um, Elon Musk then tweeted, I've talked to Mark about this. His understanding of the subject matter is limited. That's like, that's just like major burn on Twitter. It's just amazing. Like and the to and fro on this one, I'm sure will kind of keep going backwards and forwards. But, you know, it's interesting that even on a, you know, a subject matter of sort of, sci-fi related as uh, as kind of everything that happens in the the sort of artificial intelligence space that there's two people who are going about it in completely different ways see what's interesting to me is that it, they haven't said hey the older people that are talking about it and hyping it in financial services don't know what they're talking about because the there are two different views here you've got zuckerberg saying actually deep learning in the three-year time horizon allows us to automate a lot of human processes which i think from a financial services context completely makes sense and is very very different to the old school of analytics um, and it, it is really learning those white collar jobs and displacing lawyers and and things that would be done like content scanning or compliance type work uh, and pattern matching type work or uh, KYC type work that that makes complete sense to me Elon Musk is probably thinking 15 20 years out and he I, th- I, I think know. there's a time horizon piece here. like you're you know it, it sort of plays fire to the point that artificial intelligence is just such a big void of different things right you know facebook are using it for like making sure ads are better served to you whereas like Elon musk is trying to get into space and driving cars and you know i mean like like the understanding of the concepts are going to be very very different but it just shows how big a subject matter artificial intelligence actually is really yeah i mean my biggest my, my you know my only real thought about this is well maybe they're talking about two different things like, like every press release I get has AI written in it. Every chatbot and, you know, new banking customer service program has AI in it. And I am 100% sure they mean something different to what Elon Musk is talking about. And, and, and this marketing of the term AI, AI is not helpful. 
at all no. because there's more specifically deep learning and some of the stuff around deep learning and the broader subject of machine learning are both very very interesting areas that have very little to do with a lot of what's going on in the uh, natural language processing space and and so on and so on the one thing we can definitely say for certain is there's a need i think for more nuanced language in the space but when you when you stand back as an executive and look at it all it, it's all it all sounds much of a muchness but you probably need to i think get closer to some of this stuff without question okay uh next story up sir we've got one here um uh, from from your fine home at business insider uh submitted by uh amir nomu sorry if i'm saying your name wrong from uh, fintechinsidernews.com um goldman sachs are pulling back from trading america's hottest investment product the fabled etf yeah, so this is you can bear with me here whilst I explain a few terms because this is this is to do with market making, okay? Um this is to do with like, you know, market mechanics. But essentially, what Goldman Sachs is actually pulling back from is its role as the lead market maker for ETFs. Now, a lead market maker is a term mostly used in New York, but basically it means um a dealer in, you know, securities or other assets that says it will buy or sell at specified prices at all times. It also means the dealer, in this case Goldman Sachs, has been risking some of its own capital to buy and sell those ETFs, basically to help maintain their liquidity. Long story short, it's quite expensive and quite complicated, and it looks like Goldman Sachs decided it's not really worth the effort. So by stepping back, it's probably opening up some space for some smaller, much more, well, electronic, basically, at their basic um, principle, players to step in who can do this more efficiently and therefore make some more money. <laughs> and basically, it's more cost effective if you're electronic rather than Goldman Sachs. Um, my guess is that, you know, the reason that it's so interesting potentially to this audience is we're talking about ETFs. And we all know that ETFs are the primary um, source behind a lot of those robo-advisor portfolios. So what happens in this market is super interesting to a lot of those sort of automated investment products. It's also interesting to what, I mean, I would consider these electronic trading platforms fintechs. Mm -hmm. So there's two different um, arms here that are probably quite interested in this. Yeah, because uh, the, the robo-advisors, yeah, you go and buy your NASDAQ tracker and your FTSE tracker and your gold tracker, and those are funds that have been built by uh, an asset manager. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the likes of a Goldman that are holding lots of those funds on behalf of people in the market that want to buy yeah. and sell them to provide liquidity into them. But actually, they may not be the most efficient at doing it because they're doing Christ knows how many other other things we're building uh, their own etfs for a start yeah absolutely you know. because they're doing so many different things and they're building now um the business banking arm of goldman there's a lot of stuff they're going on and doing very well in, in the fintech space but this capital markets as an area for future fintechs to come in and potentially compete and deliver new things is really interesting these targeted smaller players it, it's kind of like you've got the um small specialist teams of you know like a SWAT team versus an army like the banks have armies and armies of people but they might not be very efficient for these really specific unique tasks well yeah I mean in a way Goldman's following that because it's going after something it knows it's much better at mm -hmm. so everybody is actually almost everybody's specializing whether they're a bank or a, or a fintech in in this space and don't get me wrong capital markets is one of the most complicated industries I have to look at like every time I look at what they're doing and how they do it I'm like huh so as far as I can tell, it is mostly electronic now anyway, but there is definitely space for efficiency. There's yeah. always space for more efficiently. The, the front of capital markets, the high-frequency trading stuff is, is cutting-edge computer science, like 
how close can you get to a data center? How can you outcompete each other? The Flash Boys book and all that kind of stuff. But then the back end of it is three to 30 days of manual processes. So the whole post-trade space <laughs> looks exactly like middle and back office does in the rest of most industries. It the, So there's front office and middle and back office, and middle and back office are just seen as uh, cost centers for the organization of stuff they kind of have to do. Uh, and anything that can cut cost out of middle and back office is, is really key, given that capital requirements are so high on banks right now uh, that their cost income ratios are really being looked at. But we've got to move on because we've got a lot of stories this week. And the next story is a submission from Ross uh, on Fintech Insider News saying, uh, and it's a story on Bloomberg, there is a Singapore startup that is taking Bitcoin into the real world with Visa, uh, which I think is a really interesting story because what they're actually talking about is a startup called 10X, uh, which uh, sounds a bit like... Uh, uh, our friend uh, sounds about ten x, yes. Yeah. <laughs> 10X. Ten like the words, not ten like the number. Yeah, but, uh, that's uh, uh, former Barclays CEO's company, of course. Ten um, x Visa prepaid card converts digital currencies into cash, and they've raised eighty million dollars through a token sale. So proving that token sales are again a fantastic way to raise money. Um, but uh, the idea- only eighteen million. Wow, like poor guys. Eight zero million. Yes, eighty million. Like that's they, they, compared to the two hundred. 30 that yeah. the Tezos guys did. There's, there's Jump change, huh? Yeah. Um, but basically, they're pitching this debit card as an instant converter of multiple digital currencies into fiat money. So let's say you're a, a tokenaire. Uh, you've 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 got your millions that you've raised uh, in in your tokens, or you've just done really well on Ethereum and Bitcoin, and you're now a multi-millionaire. Sorry, did you say token air? Yeah, Wait, that's... you couldn't see, but I had my head in my hands at that point. <laughs> that's just... a word now. Token <laughs> air is a thing. <laughs> wow. Okay. Token air is a thing. There are millionaires that have. So this isn't the first card of its type. There are a few others like it, uh, and they live entirely in cryptocurrency. So if I've got made ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty million dollars, uh, pounds in the cryptocurrency markets then having a prepaid debit card where i never have to be in a bank account so i can just live in this cryptocurrency means that i now live in an entirely new financial services world so this product for that market would be i think extremely extremely compelling um but again there's a question as to you know does this cross over uh, does it become something for just the crypto geeks and and you know but there's i think there's something nice about being able to live in a cryptocurrency they're definitely not the only ones who do this because there's a company out in Hong Kong that's done this for a while. They do Visa or MasterCard, depending on you know your preference. Um, and and they've raised 160 million pounds, like the old-fashioned way, oh, dollars, but you know still pretty good. Um, that company's called ANX International. But really interestingly, what they do is they issue these cards to businesses. So there's another kind of element here. Um, same, exactly the same idea. You know, you load your, your crypto tokens on and then you can spend wherever Visa MasterCard is accepted. Um, I'm, I'm in, I'm intrigued, like, because it's turning what is essentially an asset into an actual currency right now. The business element intrigues me even more, I have to say, because I'm having all sorts of thoughts about businesses hoarding Bitcoins or using Bitcoins. And I'm thinking, hmm, tax laws. Hmm. And, you know. And, and different countries have different tax laws and different countries yeah. treat Bitcoins should, in different ways. I should point ways. out, I'm not saying this is any way completely, I'm completely saying it's not illegal right now. <laughs> I don't know that. But I just find it an interesting, it raises a lot of interesting questions well, about how you it's in a gray area. Moving. Yeah. It's in a gray area. And I think that's, but one thing that doesn't seem to be slowing is the momentum for people to produce these new types of services. And of course, we do talk about those on blockchain inside quite a bit. So please download that. There's no sort of shortage of these ones, I guess, have they? So 10,000 cards have been 
uh, ordered already. I guess the the limitation on this one is though, while it's sort of instantaneous in terms of converting from cryptocurrency into sort of dollars, yen, or euros by the looks of things, which probably indicates to me this is probably going to be a Revolut feature at some point, uh-huh. right? Um, that you can only actually spend two thousand dollars a year, which seems pretty limiting, doesn't it, in terms of actually sort of bringing well, it to mainstream? Yeah, um, but Revolut already let you buy um, exchange into Bitcoin um, through a partner exchange. So I mean, the the major fintechs are moving into this space as well. Well, you can buy, but you can't instantly translate and then spend, can you? Well, that, that's the interesting thing. When does it become a currency rather than an asset? So a lot of people who are buying right now are buying it, you know, to, to make money and speculating on literally the price of the asset. They're not thinking they're ever going to, like, spend their Ether or spend their, their Bitcoin. Um, well, the process for doing that is sort of laborious at best isn't it really so no, it's you know, getting easier there are places now where it's 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 getting easier and easier to buy this sort of thing but i don't pop into tesco's and go oh i need some like milk and whatnot and i'll just sort of convert some bitcoin into pounds and then do it but the idea of this card is that you don't have to think yeah. about that right well so. that well that's the thing this is this is the type of scenario i guess where actually it can be because actually if if there's a if you are you know, one of the people who are putting all of your, you know, maybe not all of your savings, but some of your savings into this type of thing and an eventuality that yeah. cut pops up. Maybe this gives you a $2,000 lifeline to actually say, now I do have a, you know, it, it becomes more of a saving, right? It becomes a, you can break the glass on this and have in- instant access savings in Bitcoin. And in a world where there aren't uh, many high interest rates for savings in developed markets, it's it, again, it's all making a lot of sense, but it's still very, very early going back to that SEC story from earlier. Uh, but we've got to move on. We have breaking news from Reuters. Uh, Transfer-wise, the uh, the I guess the one of the major competitors for Revolut in terms of um, international money transfer uh, have links with Apple Pay globally. Story on Reuters. Uh, David, did you look at this one? Yeah, um, I I have to say this is a, an exercise in awesome headline writing that makes it sound like this big strategic global partnership that's just happened which people would be freaking out for months i'm sure but when you sort of get down to this one it basically just means that transferwise have actually implemented apple pay as a way of actually funding their account so it you know sounds like a big deal so i can and- use paypal i could use visa i could use mastercard i could use amex and now i can use apple pay that's yeah it. well it's it, it's a great thing because it means like the funding of uh, funding into transferwise becomes a whole lot easier you know there's no sort of fiddling around processes taking it off a debit card and doing it but uh, you know it feels like it's made that leap a little bit easier, but it's not the big sort of strategic yeah. partnership that it sort of made out to be. There's no question, though, in my mind, it's really good news for TransferWise. Yeah, like, you get your name up there with Apple on a Reuters article, and that's that's never going to go badly. Yeah. Um, well, there's a the whole bunch of people using Apple Pay who are now like, who is TransferWise, right? Mm. You know, my mum knows who Apple Pay is. My mum does not know who TransferWise <laughs> is. Yeah. Maybe she will do now. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good point. I think, though, I, I think back to, uh, do you remember when uh, Apple integrated Twitter and Facebook deep into the operating system so that now uh, from iOS, you can tweet something very, very quickly from all kinds of different places? I, I do think there's a scope for something like a TransferWise, a Revolut to kind of be in there somewhere someday, and that would be a real crossover. Um, but I get the sense that Apple want that to be Apple's brand and Apple's product still, and the, the, the sort of financial services side of baking into the operating system is still a little bit up for debate. One, one thing that came out of this was that I didn't realise that the backers behind TransferWise were so renowned. So you've got Richard Branson in there, 
you've got uh, PayPal, you've got kind of all sorts of people in there. So, like, I should do a little bit more digging into who it is who's been sort of funding TransferWise because clearly they've got, com. Yeah, they've yeah, got like, all they of the big had boys. some really interesting shuffling around of who was holding what as well earlier this year, just if you're interested in, in you know, the, the, the back end of TransferWise. Um, they've also shuffled their CEOs around. It's all it's all fun and games over there. It's like musical yeah, they, chairs. They swap CEOs sometimes. Twice. Yeah. They've literally swapped back again. And my understanding kind of like the Rus- Russian presidency, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, my understanding understanding is that um, one of them has um, has something else you'd rather focus on for the time being, so they just sort of switch backwards and forwards. Um, which Side like projects. Yeah. Great fun. gig if you can get it. Wow. Like- Sorry, guys. I've got something else I'd like to do for a little while. Is that okay? I'm done with Red Hot Chili Peppers. Jane's Addiction is where I'm going for a little while. 90s band references for the win. Um, there's, uh, of course, our friends at Innovate Finance taking uh, the next story up have released their Half One 2017 VC FinTech Investment Landscape, which is uh, a mouthful, but this is a fantastic report over at InnovateFinance.com. And I spoke to their CFO, Abdul, uh, to discuss the report. Fantastic. So I'm here with Abdul, the CFO of Innovate Finance. How are you, sir? Hi, Simon. Great to be here. Could you just uh, remind our listeners who Innovate Finance are, please? Sure. Innovate Finance is the independent non-for-profit membership association that represents the fintech sector in the UK. Uh, We have approximately 300 members ranging from large financial institutions such as Goldman Sachs and Citi, uh, all the way to small startups that you might not yet have heard of uh, applying their trade uh, in co-working spaces across the UK. Fantastic. So it's your job to know what's going on in fintech, especially as it relates to the UK. And there's been a report come out today that you guys have had a, a lot to do with. So could you tell us uh, what this is? Yes, that's right. It's our fourth investment landscape, looking at really the VC trends within the fintech space globally. And we do this every six months or so. Um, and it's important for two reasons. Firstly, we want to understand the trends of where investment is going and more importantly, coming from in the fintech sector and what the signals of maturity uh, coming out of those trends are for companies and sectors. Secondly, for our members, it's important to understand what sources of capital are coming into fintech uh, and how they might get a piece of that pie. So let's break into that. What's what's the headline here? So the headline is that uh, the first half of 2017 saw 787 deals globally. Uh, which attracted $6.5 billion of VC investment. And that's approximately 45% uh, lower than the the same period last year. The US attracted the largest amount of VC investment at $3.3 billion, uh, which is a 7.7% increase for the US. And China really uh, was uh, on a downward trajectory. Uh, It dropped to second place with $1 billion of investment compared with $7 billion in the first half of last year. And that's approximately an 86% decrease. So, so really, uh, China does seem to be a place that fluctuates a lot. But when they do deals, they, they seem to be massive, whereas the US seems to be consistently quite large and Europe can be a bit up and down and made of smaller deals. Would that be what you're seeing in the numbers or are you seeing different trends? I think so. You, you, the US is, uh, is very consistent year on year. Uh, China had a bumper first half of the year last year. Uh, with three what we call mega rounds for uh, Alipay or Ant Financial, Lufax and JD Finance. And the feeling very much at the time was that they're building a war chest for uh, more global expansion outside of China. And I guess we've seen that in uh, Alipay's um, proposed acquisition of MoneyGram. They've recently announced a JV with CIMBC in uh, in in the rest of Asia, uh, which is a mobile wallet. 
and uh, with Lufax uh, now announcing that they'll be launching their platform in Singapore as well. So we're certainly seeing the Chinese players emerge out of their own market and uh, vie for a global position. Absolutely. This is a trend we talk about on Fintech Insider quite often is is the expansion out of China and some of these new business models that are really coming from that space. And uh, even though there's not been as much funding uh, this so far this year, then there's uh, there's a lot of cash still there to be burned on that expansion. Absolutely. Uh, and the US as well. Any key takeaways from what's been happening there? Any, any new sectors? That are, that are emerging or is it largely the, the type of stuff we've seen before? Um, I think it's, it's, it's very steady. Um, the, the biggest round globally in the first half of the year was SoFi at 453 million who've also raised large rounds in previous years. Uh, so it's very much uh, the usual suspects um, yeah, raising later stage rounds uh, and newer, stage, newer companies coming in at the early stage uh, and keeping that pipeline going in the US. So it's interesting. We are now seeing, I guess, the momentum of the companies that have been around for a while going for the follow-on funding as well as things coming in at the bottom, which is overall dragging the trend up, would you say? Overall, it's, it's, it's dragging it up. What we're seeing is that uh, the number of deals in the US uh, seems to be going down, but the, the actual investment in, U- in the US seems to be going up, which is a signal of maturity of the sector. That's, yeah, maturity was the word in the back of my own head so what about europe what, what are the trends here so in europe uh, the uk very much leads the way and that's where we're really focused as innovate finance um the uk attracted 564 million of vc investment and that's up 37 percent against the first half of last year so given that we had the referendum at the at the end of that period um it's the first time we've seen investment levels rise to above where we had them pre-brexit um uh, and the UK is ranked third globally, which is a very consistent position for, for the UK to be in, in terms of um, the amount of investment raised. And it's second in terms of the number of deals at 102 deals. That's really quite significant because it, it's a year after. So you'd expect something to be biting now, but then there's been a bit of business as usual. Is this a one-off spike? Is this just momentum that was already there? Is this uh, people ca- keeping calm and carrying on? G- uh, great question. I think what we saw... Um, directly after the referendum result was that there was a slowdown in investment. Um, the, the end of Q2 and the beginning of Q3 last year were uh, very slow periods. However, by the end of Q3, um, after we'd been through a, a period of slight uncertainty, investment did start to pick up again. Q4 was uh, w- was a good quarter. And the first half of this year has, has indicated that that recovery is, is gaining momentum. It's not quite at the levels that w- we saw in 2015, uh, but it's a slow and steady recovery post-referendum. Have you seen anything in terms of the sources of the capital? Uh, is that mix changing at all, or is that still very much the, uh, the the usual suspects in terms of the investors? Well, I think what we saw even pre-Brexit was that we had more and more international investment coming into the UK. The UK has a very good early stage um, investment scene. Uh, the late stage investment tends to dry up, and really what we saw was more and more money coming in from overseas, especially the US and China. Last year, really, the story was that there was a lot of money coming in from China, but the US has really strengthened this position again. And we've seen approximately 54% of the investment into UK companies in the first half of the year come from overseas, so non-UK domiciled funds of which 33% of those are uh, from the US. That's really significant. And I think the the old saying of, of the last few years in the fintech space has been once you reach a certain side of maturity, you've got to look east or west or both for, for that follow-on funding. And I think that's very much the, still the case for the UK companies. But we're, we're confident that uh, longer term we'll, we'll see more domestic funding going to late stage companies, especially with the government now looking at the patient capital review and how to incentivize long-term capital into tech investment. 
So could you just uh, think about uh, what the future looks like for the fintech uh, communities globally um, and uh, tell us a little bit more about where people can get their hands on this report? Yeah, so the report's available from our website, innovatefinance.com, and also available on SlideShare. Um, what it really means for uh, for global investment is that we are seeing a bit of a slowdown. Um, we, we It doesn't currently look like we'll reach the heights that we did last year in terms of a global investment scene. However, if you do adjust for the three big Chinese rounds, it looks like outside of that, there is there is still a growth momentum. In the UK, we're seeing the recovery. Um, I think in the UK, it's really interesting to see where that money is flowing from a sector perspective. Historically, it's been in payments, peer-to-peer remittance, um, and alternative lending. Alternative lending leads the way in the first half of this year with 28% of the investment going into that sector. Uh, but we're now seeing more and more challenger banks raising large rounds of funding. Um, and the newest vertical really that's gaining traction or coming up coming up the curve is really the personal finance wealth management sector so personal finance and wealth management and challenger banks are the new big growing sectors in fintech you heard it from the uh, cfo of innovate finance abdul abdul thank you very much for being uh, with us on fintech insider pleasure thanks for having me innovatefinance.com for more thank you the financial times guides you through complex issues in divisive times don't settle for black and white when you need the full perspective turn to ft.com Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just one reader's choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Thank you very much to Abdul, and thank you very much to our sponsors as well. Um, next story up is one in Finextra. Uh, this, of course, comes from Fintech Insider News. Uh, Amir Nuwonu, sorry if I'm saying your name wrong again, um, sent us a story here about credit scoring startup Air raising $5 million and winning a deal with Zopa. So Air, um, company very near and dear to, to my heart. They came through the Barclays Accelerator when, uh, when I was involved with that. The CEO, Anish, is a very good friend and those guys are doing fantastic work. Um, Their basic thesis is that credit scoring for the underserved for thin files, as they're called, was always uh, really unfair. So if you move into a country and you have no credit history in that country, it's very, very hard to get a bank account. And one of the things they realized is that they could have had uh, more sources of data working to help give you a credit score. So for example, if I look at uh, your credit history and it's empty, I might be able to look at LinkedIn and I might be able to look at how many connections you've got and I might be able to realize hmm, there's a pr- good probability that you actually work there because all of these other people work there and I might be able to look at uh, ask you some more questions. One of the key problems is that simply... Uh, application processes for banks don't have enough data. So one of the things they did is if you get to the end of an application process and the bank didn't have enough data to give you an account, 
Air just simply pops up and asks more questions, and they ask enough questions till they can get to a decision. So um, they found that uh, they could give more people bank accounts and convert more people. I think it's an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, they, they've also um, uh, partnered up with Zopa, which is um, the other side of that alt credit piece as well. Rather than getting a bank account, it's getting a loan. It's kind of, you know, <laughs> save some money, spend some money. I, I find al- alternative credit scoring really interesting. I think it opens up huge new markets for, for you know, people like Zopa, but also potentially for the big banks. I also have questions about how they do these things you know air is very specific we don't scrape your social media platform we don't discriminate on gender uh, ethnicity and uh, age or whatever it is um but i'm also not sure that i want you to decide whether i should have a loan or not based on my profession or education like what's my education got to do with unless i'm going specifically for the likes of sofi who are going to give me a loan because i'm going to an ivy league university and i'm probably going to get a good job I mean, it doesn't work for people my age who went to really good universities graduated in 2010 and there weren't any jobs um not not bitter about that at all um but i i like the idea of this alternative credit scoring i just have questions about when you get into data privacy who owns whose data where it's coming from where it's being used um but i guess if you can't get a bank account would you be willing to answer more questions to get a bank account if your basic problem is i can't get a job until i've got a bank account i can't get a a a place to rent until i've got a bank account am i willing to give a bit more data to get a bank account but do you do you need that these days? I mean, we talk about a million and one different fintechs that will give you the equivalent of a bank account with, you know, checking that you are not a terrorist and you're not using the money, you know, you're not laundering money. They will give Seems you like the a low bar, doesn't it? Yeah. Really? Kind of... I'm not sure I'd want to give them my LinkedIn profile if I could go and do that somewhere else. What have you sure, got, what have you got to hide, good. Sarah? What have you got on your LinkedIn profile that you've got to... Yeah, yeah. it's a terrible <laughs> picture. <laughs> seems, seems really hidey, hidey. No, having having met with these guys, they do take data privacy as seriously as you can imagine. And I think there is something to be said for uh, if the standard process at a large organisation fails, then can they use a more detailed process? I, I think the, the thing is who's making the decision. So mm-hmm. I think think if it, it like I, I don't mind new data sources being brought into these things to enrich decision making if it's not just a computer making a decision um, so actually at the point where like the um, an advisor process is being enriched through signs of potential unfortunately a lot of those times it, it requires leaps of faith between data sets to actually make those things work really really well and I don't think the kind of automated systems that most of the the organizations that we're talking about have got that stuff in place to do that not in a you know, you didn't go to these four schools and therefore you're screwed type mentality, you know. Uh, we got to move on. So, David, uh, the next story up is more bad news for Lloyds. Uh, this one's in the Telegraph. Lloyds are paying back customers more than £300 million in compensation for mortgage arrears errors. What's going on? It kind of feels like that um, alongside the Alipay buys a thing jingle that we need to kind of go and do. It's the Lloyd's pay a fine for a thing jingle that we need to kind of create. So this is another 300 million on top of uh, what amounts to, what was it, about 18 billion pounds that they've paid out for various different things. A terrifying amount of money. So I'm waiting for that moment where a bank goes Britney in 2007. Like, it's it's just been quite bad, hasn't it? <laughs> Come back to me, Justin. All is forgiven. <laughs> Who's the Justin Timberlake in this scenario, I guess? I don't know, but I don't know. The who- banks have an awful lot of umbrellas, is all I'm going to say. I've seen <laughs> Very them. Very true. Um, but it's a, a kind of a scary one on this one. So £300 million is going to be repaid to 600,000 customers for mortgage arrears errors that took place over a seven-year period. So this is sort of more bad news, I guess, for one of the big banks in the UK who are sort of trying very hard to kind of put 
not wanting to go into sort of quantum leap references here, but sort of, uh, you know, put uh, right the wrongs of their past in terms of uh, where they were going with that one. But yeah, I, I kind of feel, I just feel like how many billions can be paid in fines by one single entity without them just sort of calling it a day, really? Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the numbers, I've, you know, they, they've paid, so it says a fresh £1.6 billion hit in the first six months of the year. And then uh, lower down the article I'm looking at, it says their first half profits were £2.5 billion. Now, even my math says that's a significant wallop. You know, which whether that's before or after, that's still, if you look at the percentage of their profits, they're paying in fines. It is considerable, let's it, put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it is It is staggering. And The thing that I loved about this whole thing in the, the, um, the Telegraph was it was like stats after stats after fines after fines. Lloyd's declined to comment. <laughs> What's interesting to me is like not paying any more fines as a business case seems really good, but the only solution appears to be throw more compliance officers at it who have spreadsheets. And like that isn't working, guys. We need to be get a bit more creative. We need to look at our paper-based processes and our manual processes and start thinking about how could we actually see what's going on here. The second part of it, of course, is is the big bit, right? The, once you've created the transparency, uh, there's always the issue that there's a conduct side of it and people will try and game the system. And you, that cultural transformation is going to be harder and take longer. Yeah, the, well, this this particularly was about the uh, mortgage arrears policies, um, and this specifically the way in which they conducted the financial difficulty assessments for those customers. So, I don't is this know. basically that they let people default on their mortgages who they shouldn't have given mortgages to in the first place? How, what does that actually mean? I think in most of these instances, it's that they've wrongly classified people's potential to go into arrears. Right. Um, in the same way as sort of mis-selling of investments has been a, a kind of one that people have been hammered with a lot because there's been misallocation of people into various different pots of pots of risk. You know, it, it's a bizarrely sort of minor inability to properly document the processes that they've gone through, as well as allocating buckets of risk. So it's a it's a strange one, but and I don't. F- if I'm honest with you, I don't feel that this is in any way or shape or form going to be the last one of these that we're going to be seeing. Um, no, again, we should say that Lloyd's is not the only British bank that's been hit yeah, by this. It's by, pretty much all of them at this yeah, stage. Yeah, by, by no means. And it, and it kind of feels like I sort of fear for the day where this becomes sort of one of the fintech players. I think if in the back of my mind, I sort of feel to a certain degree is like how many big organisations can sort of hemorrhage £18 billion and still exist. Yeah. Well, and we've seen uh, that fines tend to be... Uh, I've started to come into the fintech space a little bit. Um, I think we had, uh, was it Rate Setter a couple of weeks ago that had uh, the beginnings of that? Uh, it, it's starting to happen. And also, you know, this is not a uniquely British thing. Uh, since the financial crisis, we've seen a lot of these in the US. And um, there was Wells Fargo as well that famously had, had their debacle. Uh, the industry just probably needs to get a handle on its processes more generally and start thinking this stuff through. It, it, it does seem seem to be an epidemic that's just rolling and rolling and rolling a decade on. I mean, the, I mean, these guys, you know, arguably it happened and it was missed when it was happening. I mean, the FCA this week or last week announced um, that investigation into the advertised rates that a lot of these uh, cross-border transfer companies are using. And, you know, they basically said, we told you once, we told you twice, and you didn't clean up your act, so we're coming after you now. They are coming after them at an earlier stage, which hopefully should prevent us getting to this point but you know we'll, we'll see um a lot a lot of uh, i do feel bad for the banks into a certain degree in some of these because a lot of it feels like retrospectively enforcing 
rule sets that were very vague in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, not not that I'm in any way sort of condoning anybody's action to uh, sort of uh, missell anything, way or shape or form, but um, it does feel pretty harsh, doesn't it? It, it feels harsh, but uh, don't worry about it because the Bank of England are warning that more defences may be needed against consumer credit. Uh, what kind of defences are needed against consumer credit here, do <laughs> Big stacks of cash. That's essentially the uh, the defence that they're putting up. So, um, oh, so once you've paid the fines, put aside a lot of money to defend against... More fines, no, yeah. more problems. Essentially, this is the the sort of we thought it was safe to go back into the waters, and now it is not, unfortunately. So it's um, quite a, a, a sort of a doom and gloom perspective, I guess, that's coming out of the Bank of England here. That uh, are we spiralling into <laughs> complacency here? Oh, the, the quote is, you know, we are um, entering a spiral of complacency. We're not there yet, but it's coming. This sounds like either the beginning of a movie and the most British thing. We are entering a spiral of complacency. It just, I, I mean, picturing a monocle, a top hat. It is. It's most- a beautiful choice of words, isn't it? It really is. It's incredibly poetic, especially when you think it's um, talking about, you know, dealership car finance, total consumer credit, credit cards, and nominal household income growth, all compared to one another in a beautiful chart that looks, looks really, really bad, actually. I mean, I mean, long story short, people have People are just borrowing because interest rates are so low. They're Ten just years going since for the it. credit crunch, what we did was decrease interest rates to spurn more borrowing. And lo and behold, people borrowed more. The economy got out of trouble and people have more debt. So there's um, a Professor Steve Keen, who's an economist um, that uh, Izzy Kaminska at the FT is a big fan of, talks about when you lower interest rates consistently, what you do is you enter a 17-year cycle where every time that you have a crisis, you respond by reducing interest rates and you will have a steady growth and it looks like the growth is consistent for almost this 17-year period and then you get this massive crash and then you go into another wave of easing again. And it feels like we're kind of, you know, 10 years after the financial crisis, we're, we're sort of, people are warning, hey, this there's, there's some debt building up here. This this could be happening again. It's uh, it, we have we learned? Yeah, it's 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 worrying that they're basically saying like brace yourself, here comes the losses, uh, yeah. and that's that's and, worrying, and isn't it? Consumer losses, and not just losses, loss of people's homes and cars, which could be their livelihoods. I mean. To me, this raises, this brings back questions of responsible lending and how do you define responsible lending? When and, interest rates are so low. Well, yeah, um, maybe. Which is that, a policy level thing, right? I mean, it's a government level thing. It's, well, it's a Bank of England level thing. But maybe that ties back to these alternative credit scores. Maybe when you're deciding who you should be lending to and how much, you're not just looking at interest rates and income. You're actually looking at, you know, what they're spending on groceries which arguably has gone up etc etc so there were some pretty phenomenal sort of quotes at the end of this one i'm not sure if you sort of read the uh, telegraph ad uh, all the way to the end here so it says this aims to stop the economy having to suffer the endless repeats of debt strikes back movie he added for now settle back with your popcorn and watch the oddly not yet highly grossing new blockbuster return of the regulator which for me sounds like some sort of warren g sort of uh, yeah, reunion the talk. Or it does uh, yeah which can is i just say I, I love this guy's language yeah <laughs> he's at least making an attempt to make something that's inherently quite boring and terrifying at least entertaining yeah, but there was a pretty graph um but moving on uh there's a story here in the scotsman sarah about uh we need fintech to help us handle pension pots and of course this was uh, submitted by cybot from fintechinsidernews.com of uh, sarah what's going on here 
I mean, basically, the the premise of this piece is that the pension industry has been relatively slow to adopt fintech, whether that's, um, you know, fintechs as in the startups or whether it's the, you know, legacy industry um, putting their socks up and, and, and working out how they can use technology to serve their, their customers better. Basically, this particular piece is talking about how startups are struggling um, because the legacy players won't play ball, which is not surprising to me at all. Um, and it gives us to talk about the fact that the government has kind of stepped in um, to basically make it easier for people to understand their pensions. I mean, we just talked all the way through about this, uh, you know, spiral of complacency and debt and, you know, nobody's got any savings. Um, and obviously, you know, pensions are playing into that. They're a huge part of that. So this article points out that, you know, the government's trying to bring out this pensions dashboard in 2019. So we'll, you know, it's got time, um, which aims to sort of put all your pensions in one place in front of you and make it easier for you to kind of work out what you've got where and what those fees are. Um, I think it's a little unfair on the fintechs. I think there are quite a few fintechs out there which are doing some really interesting things in this space. Not to mention, you know, the, the every robo-advisor out there has got some kind of pension option these days. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think that, that fintech hasn't ignored the pension space. I think it, it needs to be maybe more uh, widely publicised. But, you know, I think it's slightly um, one-sided. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one. It's like, you fintech people haven't done anything with pensions yet type thing. It's like there's quite a big sort of amount of financial services that we're sort of dealing with right now. But people like Pension B have done a you know a really good job of actually uh, providing an aggregation service to, to sort of pull all of those things together. Which... Well, and there's Nutmeg and in the US there's Betterment and Wealthfront and others. The, the people who are providing you the savings account often provide some sort of pension product in the US. There's a lot of 401k type um, fintech providers. So I think this is starting to happen and the asset managers have started to look at what their next generation of service should be. I do think fintech is here, but I think the fundamental problem of pensions when we have an aging population when we have less people contributing towards pension pots and more people taking out of pension pots as we age the retirement age getting longer well the, the following th- on from our last story is like everybody's skint and we're about to go into a recession nobody's planning for retirement everybody's like how do i pay my rent right you know this is yeah i mean there is there is a second point here about the um, auto enrollment pensions that are coming in so a lot of people will end up with a pension whether they've had one before or not um i think that the point there is there's a huge educational gap like i look at the fees on my pensions and i've got you know three from three different providers and i'm like huh what and i work in the industry well that's a key point you've got three from three different providers and actually we're moving more into a world in which people are working in the gig economy people are working freelance people don't have a job for life anymore things were all a lot simpler when you joined one company and worked with them for life and you stayed there and then you got your retirement and that was that was it that doesn't happen anymore in the good old days yeah when I was a lad. Uh, but this has changed. And what's interesting to me is we saw like Uber announce that they've now got their pension schemes coming. And we've seen that these bigger platforms are moving into this space. But fundamentally, like the, the pensions industry, whether it's in the US, in Europe, is very old school, very manual, and hasn't really responded to the change in demographics that we see, which means it's a giant opportunity. But it needs some centralized governance because it's so distributed. Like who owns pensions for a country? Well, I think that's what the, the I think in all fairness i think that's what the pensions dashboard is trying to do because not only do you see your private pensions but you see what your statutory pension <laughs> might be when i reach like i think i have to be 78 before i get a pension or something i mean you know such um, a youth <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well uh, yeah i'm also a woman so you know i get mine later we can talk about that another time um but i think that is what the pensions dashboard is trying to do is bring it all together and make it 
easier for you to see it in you one do place. get to live a little bit longer that's the, the tendency there right so it's <laughs> technically because you live longer you get paid it later i think that's the theory right Hmm. <laughs> I'll happily die with no um, money early and then uh, <laughs> good luck, Sarah. Um, back to centralizing pensions. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the point, I think the, the two main points here are, all right, we need to find a way for everybody to see everything in one place and we need to find a way for everyone to understand it. And, you know, if the government has to take a leading role in that, then it has to take a leading role in that. Government hasn't had a tr- tremendous track record of, of centralizing things. So I do hope that we can kind of get to the point where that, that becomes a, a service that many people can get involved. I, I think the understanding bit is the critical bit in this is like nobody really gets pensions nobody really actually understands the the sort of fundamentals of what it is that you're paying into you know the the fact that the whole sort of annuity thing in this space doesn't actually mean anything to anybody and it feels like one of those things that you worry about when you're old but at the point where you're old you're already screwed you know it's, it's like oh i wish when i was 18 i was doing such and well, such well, even, even the fact that you pay fees i i have got friends who didn't know that you you know, they've got employer-provided pensions. They didn't know they paid fees on those. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and also when you leave that employer, you're still paying fees on that pension. Yeah. So you probably want to pull it out because they're not actively managing it the way they used to, depending on how the pension scheme was set up. There's, yeah. there's, there's a lot to be said there. Good game if you can get away with it, though, right? You know, like if you're a pension provider and you're getting sort of money for money and people might forget about it and might not draw it down, you know, it's a good place to be. We need open banking for pensions, it sounds like. We need more APIs. Clearly, that's the answer to everything. Uh, last story up is one in Hacker News. Uh, a submission by Natty London on fintechinsidernews.com. Uh, Sweden accidentally leaks personal details of nearly all citizens sarah david anyone want to take a stab at this one um whoops um i, I love that it's like sweden accidentally did it. it's just like oh sweden what did you we do love sweden. It's, yeah. like, it's impossible to be angry at sweden it's it's really interesting as well it's actually the nation's military secrets on top of you know cu- yeah, but uh, what military secrets all right it's sweden i mean it? basically the, what basically happened was outsourcing outsourcing deal with ibm ah yeah so as far as i understand it what what happened was the the swedish transport agency and i'm not going to try and say what that's called in swedish come on have a go uh, <laughs> no um <laughs> uh basically mishandled an outsourcing deal with ibm which led to the leak of private data about every vehicle in the country including those used by both police and the military a data breach exposed the names, photos, and home addresses of millions of Swedish citizens, including fighter pilots, members of the military's most secretive units, police suspects, people under the witness relocation program, oh, whoops. and the weight capacity of all roads and bridges. I don't know that I would have finished with that. <laughs> no, that's a good finish. I like um, that finish. But yeah, wow. <laughs> so this is an ongoing trend where we're having absolutely massive and comprehensive data breaches. And what's really surprising to me is we've kind of got to the point where people are still trying to build ever higher walls. And somebody uh, in one government cybersecurity position described to me that every day we build the walls higher and every day they get faster at climbing. And so it's difficult when you're in a cybersecurity position that you know executives and people who work in cybersecurity know how hard this is because really what you've got 
the primary defense against any cyber attack is its weakest point, which are the people that use it. And the second defense is the keys you use to get into these services properly. And the problem with keys is if you steal a key, you can walk in through the front door and do untold damage. And we need to get more mature and we need to assume that those keys are going to get stolen. How do you react? You're also being very kind. This wasn't a breach. They leaked it. They emailed it out in clear text. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing um, on this one is it, it appears there should have been some controls in place at some point along this. So so reading through this, so the uploaded IBM's entire database into the cloud servers, okay, covered all of the details of vehicles in the country and, and all the good things and uh, entertaining things that Sarah just said. The transport agency then emailed the entire database to in messages to marketeers that had subscribed to that. Oh dear! I mean, this is this is beyond. This is actually, I would say, this is actually incompetent. Yeah, completely unencrypted <laughs> in clear text, as you say, Sarah. This is yeah. just like a comedy of errors. Isn't What's it? amazing is that when they've attached it to the email, the email server hasn't gone. No, it's above five megabytes. You can't email the thing. <laughs> <laughs> what basically what we've learned is we want their email client. Um, Absolutely. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, by the way, about cybersecurity. I just think in this particular case, it yeah. was. Um, spectacular spectacular incompetence wins the day well that's all we've got time for on this week's show uh, be sure to head over to fintechinsidernews.com to browse the latest news and stories and you can upvote the stories you can decide what's going to be on the show next week uh, i want to thank our guest uh, sarah this week sarah where can people learn more about what you do uh, you can find me on twitter at sarah kashansky Brilliant. And uh, David, thank you for being with us once again, sir. Very welcome. Uh, and if you like what you've heard this week, please don't forget to subscribe. Our podcasts are a low, low 30 megabytes, so we're not going to take up all the space on your device. Leave us a review on iTunes. I cannot tell you how helpful it is if you leave a review. So if you have a spare minute or two, you're about to listen to your next podcast, please just think about leaving us a review. Thanks for listening. Until next time. 